Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi folks, welcome to uh, one of our first, uh, why I say this, prototype recording that we got going on where we're trying to get live and kicked up on YouTube and anywhere else we're going to see this and hopefully this works. If not, we got the backup recording you're listening to and it didn't work. (laughs) So uh, for that being the case, I of course am... uh, Really, really the life's blood. If I would say my right arm, except it's really more like the other half of me. Uh, what's up, Brennan? How we doing? Hey, y'all. What's up? I'm pretty energized. I just finished my third or fifth cup of coffee. You know, I can't remember. You know how it goes. Awesome. And then, of course, if that's Brennan, uh, we have the guy who keeps my pulse and lifeblood glo- going when it comes to gaming and all things uh, relevant to us. And that's, of course, DJ. What's up, my man? Hello. I'm good. I'm alive. And I'm it's well. weird. DJ seems like he's almost digitizing. I'm loving this. Uh, this this right here must be that New York connect. He turned off his AC. I'm like Max Headspace. He turned off his AC, and it's like his motherboard is sweating. I don't know what's going on right now, but that heat must be real. Uh, but today we're going over Requiem, and we're touching on Immortal Sinners. And I should, should preface this a bit. Immortal Sinners is that book, that good book we talked about that has all the good stuff in it. And by good stuff, a lot of the characters you've seen us mention that we know and love that are in there, one being the Unholy, probably the most notable, and then, of course, uh, Solomon Birch for myself, mm-hmm. but I already beat him up mm-hmm. several times. And uh, we, So we did a challenge. What we said here is that we're going to pick, like, four. Now, let these guys pick them as to what we're going to hit and kind of go over where they're at in Requiem. But before we get to that good stuff, which is all that story content, I want to talk mechanics. This book, I feel, really launched a sort of pattern. When you guys say like like a like a this is this is the guidebook you need to follow in terms of releasing if I'm gonna have an important NPC how to use them what they're about what it could mean in the story hooks is what we're talking about we've seen a lot of that in V5 right for the hot hotness the new hotness they have a lot of that there where they will talk about a guy and kind of leave those hooks but it's great to see mm-hmm. it's it's been it's been going in requiem for quite a bit as a standard what you think. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit spoiled in that this was like one of the first ST books I ever cracked open, right? So I saw this, all the NPCs here, like laid out their their like backgrounds, their secrets, and all those hooks there. I was like, oh, well, this is cool, right? And like I just took that as standard. Like, of course, this is what you would do because it just makes sense. It's perfect, right? And they they even like cut up all these different sections. Like these are the preeminent monsters. That means that they're very notorious, but they're approved of. These are the outlaws, which means they're notorious. People don't like them. Like, oh, okay, we're grouping everything together so it's easily used. Yeah. Then I started going back to some of the other ones, like uh, from Masquerade, like, uh, what was it, Children of the Night? I was like, oh, well, this is just everything right here. And this is this is like a Bible of, like, Metaplot characters. This is kind of cool, all right, but, like, how do I mesh them in? Like, where's the, where's the hooks? Would it shock you to learn that by you looking at the, the magic of for the right format, this lets you know why editors are worth their money. You have all the same damn content located in that Children of the Night book you had from Masquerade, but they didn't give you what I like to call the U.S. audience mm-hmm. necessity, where you're directed, this is the section that has the plot hooks. This is the section where we omit the obvious, thinking you could piece it together. Do what you want with this info. What happened is without those guiding lights that you see here uh, that they started doing in Requiem, I should say, but definitely in this book, when you look at this, because there wasn't the company, the authors telling you, now this is a story hook, may or may not be true, use it as you will. Because they didn't say that, people treated everything as canon. Mm -hmm. So one of the most toxic communities ever created online was this term canon, that everything we got coming out is canon, that you can do with this information what you will at home. However... That was also, believe it or not, the draw of Requiem for a new crowd was to see that this makes sense. This is cool. Just like you said, Brennan. But in my experience, this was the actual thing to push people away. They would say, like, old crowd, they would sit there and say, oh, you're going to tell me how to use this character? This character's garbage anyway. This is too much effort. This is way too this much effort. Too do much I, whatever, effort. I don't you care. Mean I have to think stuff through? I, I, have to, I have to, like, piece it together? I don't have a book that just tells me everything? Garbage. All right. <laughs> 
it does both. I, I trash. I had done done the due diligence to ask people some some STs I love from back of the day exactly what was their major hangups of Requiem in relation to this book if they had it, and of course they did. And that that was one of the slam dunk things I found eye opening and hysterical. Like you know, like you could you can get over it, right? You know, I'm 43. That was back what eight 20s, whatever. We can figure it out. But that's old and new. However, DJ. I, I always go back to you because you're someone who's still involved in a lot of circles in terms of mixing it up where from, from magic to jihad to, sorry, Vampire mm-hmm. of the Eternal Struggle uh, mm. to uh, that's how old school, man, you're going to have it, um, right. etc. You're even wearing the Genesis shirt, my man, which is a fantastic game that you brought to light. So I call you the everyman. You're right in the middle. When it comes to that, what <laughs> do you think about the form of the book? Do you think it matters? Are we just waxing poetic here? Or do you think it's definitely a draw? I think it is definitely a draw because um, prior to coming in from uh, revised, uh, we spoke about this before. I love templates. I think templates are a great way to understand where your characters at, along with what type of story you're trying to tell. And I think that the way that this book also breaks itself apart, as Brendan was telling you, is it gives you an idea of what type of game um, you may want to play, along with what types of monsters are acceptable within certain types of society and how far they can push the limit. So we could talk about, like, once again, we could talk about, like, a famous, you know, Sasha Vikos or Tariq the Silent, but we don't exactly know where they scale in, because it all depends on the the story you're trying to tell. And as you were mentioning as well, as an introductory thing, I know what Solomon Birch is. To me, Solomon Birch is a complete monster, but according to the book, he's tolerated. And when I started thinking about it, I was like, that's right, he's got the backing of the lens, let's say, not to spoil it, but he, he has a place in the world, and that's the reason why his monstrous acts exist versus the other characters that are being shown. So I thought that was very eye-opening for me. That, uh, that also calls to mind the intro to this book. I, th- th- it's, a, it's a way to portray Solomon Birch and the Unholy in a game relating to what they're doing, something that I think is very much uh, very much worth the title, Immortal Sin. Uh, they're involved in a very much cat-and-mouse game where Birch is, long story short, planning on Chicago, some nefarious need, but the person he's trying to wake to do that, the Unholy's there to eat. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. And he has to convince this monster from, from bygone time, whenever she's wherever she's from, that she's got to let it happen. It's worth reading the story to kind of get the feel of at least one take of the Unholy and Birch. Um, there are others, right? They've done novels where, where Birch definitely feels... I honestly think they did a great job in transitioning it the same. In my head, Birch is Birch and still very much yeah. that manipulative mm-hmm. power player, religious fanatic. It's still there. Um, however, the Unholy some different plays you see from the unholy and to talk a little bit about who the unholy is what the unholy is about i'm gonna settle to the number one super fan of the unholy he even has a raven tattoo uh brendan <laughs> kick it off man. i'm not gonna lie i sometimes forget about that tattoo so you said that i was like what is he oh yeah i do have that uh it is not related to the unholy i'm gonna state that right now it's just a happy coincidence <laughs> anyway unholy starts out here right um I'm going to talk about her a little bit in that in that intro story, right? Where she shows up and Birch is trying to, to get out of there or, or get that thing he wants, right? That, um, I won't, what he's trying to get really isn't that important, right? But she's there and she's about to eat it. And Birch shows up because uh, really he beat the unholy to the punch. And she shows up going to it. And he's like, oh, I got to play it cool. Let's see what she does. And the, the entire point of this is that um, I think maybe... The Unholy is the only person Birch probably would have reacted this way to, except maybe the Prince, where he doesn't try to kill them or torpor them or force them out. He doesn't try to, like, uh, use his, um, well, the, the might of the sanctified behind it. I felt like he was a man, like a normal man, staring down a lion. He's like, all right, I got to play <laughs> this cool. And he comes off very self-assured. And he basically just says, look, you're here to kill him, but, like, uh, I know, that heart's blood, tasty, tasty, right? Uh, he's still in torpor, though, and, like, this isn't really a hunt. You're really just taking the leavings of someone else, like, cleaning their plate for him. Is this really how you want to do it? And the unholy just stares at him and slowly then walks to, like, the, the ladder going up, and she's like, I like you, Birch. And I feel like at that moment, as she left after saying that, his stomach sunk. Like, that is not what you want to hear from the unholy. Last thing. Because that is the reputation of the unholy. She, um, 
she is known, right? But she is more like a, a boogeyman than like uh, other sanctified hearing, like of, of Bishop Birch. She's um. Um, to, to reiterate some stories we told about her before, she has a, a cycle she'll go through every five years, decade or so, where she shows up to a city under some name, pretending to be someone else, and she'll, she'll play the game, right? Follow the rules until she doesn't. And then she's brought in, but she doesn't resist. It's only when the final, like, punishment is about to be levied out that she basically destroys these cities that she comes to and there's never really uh solid accounts of it because she just turns from like a seeming person to a force of nature uh but that because that's what she is at this point her entire idea is not just to cause chaos she's not killing people for fun she has a method for it she's a teacher how she sees herself right that these all these laws these societies that you build up are just a facade they're just a joke and the only real law is that you're either strong enough to survive to take what you want or you're not what do they give us though to talk about later in your opinion um i obviously read the 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 whole thing on her and even looked at all the stuff we've researched and, and come across you're always you feel this passion for the unholy and i said to myself she must have an amazing good story to represent who she is do you still feel that after this is the book where she's actually statted for her, for her story? Um, kind of yes and no. Her, her story is going to be more of a grim fairy tale, right? To keep her in, in perspective. She is not some Ancilla that's going around and has made a name for herself. She is grouped in with these ancient elders who have had their requiem stretch on for so long that there is barely shreds of the human they were before left, right? So the story that they do have there, um, I, I think it's actually pretty good, but it is that grim fairy tale esque story, right? She was a girl who was picking flowers and berries in a bog, right? And she knew the, the ghost stories of the basically Baba Yaga or the mother of monsters that lived here, but it was fine to be out here as long as you were back before sundown. But little, little pre-unholy was uh, just having so much fun and not paying attention that uh, her excursion out into the woods took her for longer than she should. And the, um, the Baba Yaga, the mother of monsters, that, the crone, that kind of archetype monster we're talking about here, snatched her up. But she didn't just kill her. She didn't just turn her. The story goes on that she was tortured bits of her ripped out time and time again until she was bled dry and this has probably my favorite story of an embrace that i've ever read this monster drained her dry cut her open and filled her with these ravens and crows that she had called and it was only after all these these murders of ravens that had nested in her body that she rose up and was the unholy. And after that, um, she was let go. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just, all right, be free now. Every kindred she's ever embraced has died. Every ghoul she's ever ghouled has died within a year. No bonds she has ever lasts. So she has the only thing that's been left for her in this Requiem and the reason why she has these cycles is because if basically if she's not having these bonds, she's had to survive by herself. And so she's passing those lessons on as she knows. Them. And they did, um, they did say something, one of the secrets she has that, uh, that I absolutely loved. And that's her, her biggest regret. She at one time tried to fit in. She wanted those bonds, those bonds of covenants. She wanted those, those laws, those laws of like safety. But she, it, wasn't, it wasn't to be that was taken from her. And that's that's the greatest shame she ever had, that that was her old weakness. Now, I found it odd, right, this whole story. There's there's some bits I want to throw in at you. Uh, we're going to go back old school. It said time when she was picking berries in a bog. That's that's what I like to call vague hyperbole. That's like a, that's like a weak start to a story that they don't know, mm. right, as somebody's rewritten. Now, it's funny because mm -hmm. they're writing it in to say this is canon who she is. But here's what I said to you before, Children of the Night. They wrote in a book and they would leave gaps like this for you to, you know, think of it what you will. I feel they did it here again despite. And here's why. 
the whole point of the unholy and why she's terrifying is because you don't know what her story is. You have no idea what her origin could be. And you know what makes more sense? That the unholy is not this uh, super ancient gang girl wrecking crew, but perhaps what's the biggest enemy of Requiem vampires so far? Uh, so far, that would be the Strix. Doesn't she sound like a Strix? Ah. Oh, she be- Yes. Uh, that's that's a that's a good call out. The um so, sorry, go ahead. I'll let you finish what you're trying to get. Well, out. What I'm doing is like just 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 to just to point out the the math for everybody. Uh, a Strix is a spirit that wants to possess and cause the most horrendous blood drenching carnage it possibly can. They live in excess. They love pleasures of the flesh and the pain of the flesh. Sadomasochism rolled into one. And when I read about the unholy, even the short story at the beginning here, and how she is, Birch fails to seduce her. But how the hell would you seduce a Strix? Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it with words. But when he pulls on instincts, <coughs> now, now she's all listening. And said she turned her head like an owl to stare at him, too. And I felt that was a... Cur- Impossibly, right? Like- that was a creative thing to do because Birch had actually hit what's inside her. And to me, it speaks of a long-term possession that her body hasn't worn through. And maybe whoever she was when she first got grabbed, this whole desire to fit in as it puts down there, I feel that's her trapped within. Mm-hmm. She, of course, would love to fit in, except she can't feel anything but the hunt and the kill. And that's what she lives for. And the chaos it causes. Even the ritual you talk about, her going into a city, letting them do what they want, and then when they're about to punish her, oh, the joy, and watching her smash and kill people as she leaves and just throws the whole domain into a tessie. That, that sounds like a Strix to me. Mm-hmm. No, it does. It absolutely does. Um, it goes more into this in like second end. This is jumping ahead just a little bit, so I'm going to keep this short. But every Strix that is written up on an individual basis that's Hantu, the sorcerer, uh, the mother, uh, the, the frickin' Baron guy, every one of them has a theme and a, a focus that they go after. And all of them share that same template and in, uh, in cycle to a degree that the unholy does. So there's a lot of things that could play up there. Is that, like, is she just possessed by a Strix? Or is uh, did a Strix embracer start this, like we read about with uh, Remus, right? Did she lay a Strix egg inside of a vampire, and the beast just turns into a Strix later on? It's a very, very, uh, and I, I kind of just made that up, right, for everyone thinking, like, where is he getting that? Like, that's just me going on, <laughs> all right? So don't take that as canon. <laughs> but that's the joy of it, right? Because that's, you know, that also puts me in the same mindset when I was reading it, and I start thinking about all the other vampires, or, you know, all the other characters you read up until now, because the Unholy is further down in the book. But the joy of reading Requiem is the fact that there are so many permutations of the blood and how it comes to be that there's no reason not to imagine that the Baba Yaga had put and laid that egg within her and that egg keeps propagating itself, right? What if just by virtue of what she was in terms of her creation rights, if you want to call it that, which I think it definitely was considering how many birds mm. they stuffed her. They made her to the original Turducken, <laughs> the only Turducken of Turduckens. It's <laughs> a good one. But, but like, you know, it's the fact that she she became other, you know, that that beast was just there to begin with. And you're right, you know, every other children, with the exception of, I think, what was it, that bat face guy, Ambrose, the one who, who apparently was also hit with um, in the Chicago Chronicle book that they claim might or might not be yes. hers. And he's always like, oh. yeah, coming around, maybe. Okay. Right, the pilot guy that the unholy somehow just, <laughs> but I mean, even then, that guy, his the manifestations of his flaws are very severe, much in the same way that the Unholies are. So it makes me wonder just what came before and what comes after. It's it's a great idea to play along with it, and I think is a is an excellent addition uh, to show what an ancient horror can do in your game. Horror. I want to add that yeah. horror part. <laughs> Pronunciation there's, there's a lot is very important. It has a completely different <laughs> meaning if you forget one of those R's. Wave it off. Wave it off. That's what I'm doing. All right. So, DJ, uh, one of the ones you selected had me thrown for a loop. You chose Emily Washington. And I was – the floor is yours, man. I was I was wanting to hear why. So, Emily Washington falls under the category of monsters that are tolerated. And the reason I chose her is because um, the basic story about her is that she came up <clears> – she came up being a mixed breed child – uh, between Anglo and Japanese. Um, and even though that was a curiosity during her life, because she had so much, she apparently had a lineage that even stretched back to the Founding Fathers. So that was already impressive enough as it was. Her being present for the most part was an oddity, but it was one that they loved to bring along because they have to see this mixed child to see how she actually endures in this social climate. 
Um, but lo and behold, before we know it, we know that both her parents um, ended up dying. She ends up in an orphan. She ends up in a school that was chosen for her. And at one point in time, as we fast forward, she meets her dear Uncle Herbert, who have never seemed to have age. And when she caught him, she found him feasting. Um, but there was this look in his eye um, that mixed between hatred and uh, petty lust. I, I've read which this seems book. pretty typical for a vampire. I've heard of this before. This is a series of unfortunate events, isn't it? No, no, it's okay. Uncle Touchy's Puzzle you know? Basement. It's the children's book. Right. <laughs> Please keep going, DJ. You're not wrong. So, you know, she gets embraced, but the thing about her that she notices is upon her embrace, um, there's a gnarly mark on her neck from where she was bitten, and she always wears a scarf to keep it around. Fast forward a little bit, we come to find out she's actually part of a bloodline. Um, Uncle Herbert apparently is the Apraxis which is a very old bloodline whose name apparently does doer of good deeds. However, these doer of do, do, uh, good deeds aren't really doing any good to anyone. Why I chose them was because of how they interact with society at whole. They are an Invictus bloodline of sorts, and they're very, very restricted. Each heir is only allowed one member. But the reason they're kept along, even though they cause such a mess is because every Invictus gets to the Wolfpack mentality, saying you always need an Omega or someone to, to scapegoat around. I might be a shitty Invictus, but at least I'm not as bad as the Apraxis. However, I did hear your Apraxis is coming to town. We must see what they're like. Really? Yes. Do invite them and let's see what happens. Um, and what ends up happening is they bring along Emily, and Emily still carries the same type of fascination that she did in life, where people just want to see what the oddity is about. And they bring her into these meetings. And she always seems like she's so weak and she always seems so frail. And at the edges, it always seems like even though she's nearing an Ancilla's age, she still seems like a neonate. And most people just keep fawning over her. Don't worry, Emily. We'll take care of you. We'll help raise you up. And all the while, Uncle Touchy Herbert is sitting in the background going, yes, yes. So long as she's so long as she's entertained, I'm entertained, too. Please let me know. And then when the dog goes poopy all over the floor, i.e. their feeding habits once again leave such a nasty, nasty mark, it's time to go ahead and move over. But why would you tolerate it? Because they know people. What's this nasty mark? Like you said the feeding habits are so bad, they're so bad to have around. Other than you saying so, how would I know? Um, because of how it's described, uh, she, uh, any vessel that they have that they feed off of does not leave any, you can't lick the wound shut. And because of the voraciousness in which they feed, you would almost think it would look a Nagaraja, oh. but with straight teeth. So it even makes it even worse. So it's if just, I have so never heard of Nagaraja, help me out, DJ. Like, like short teeth. Thank like, you. It's, it's a nice big chompy wound. So there we not, go. My it's body. It's not like so nice range puncture wound. marks. And if we're on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Right, for, I'm for, so for, glad this is on go. video. <laughs> I, I, want, I really want those like raw claws. <laughs> 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 It has to happen. Sorry, they literally chew through their wound to open it up. This is this is interesting. Is it that they don't have the fangs? Are they blunted? Does it say that? Or is it just they can't lick the wound close? They just can't lick the wound close. But they're also Deva, which also helps perpetuate and, like, exasperate the amount of feeding. Like, in the throes of it, you don't take food away from a dog. And when that dog's done, that dog's done. And it's like, oh, shit. Well, it is what it is. You did give me a turkey leg. How'd you expect me to eat it? With a fork and knife? Nah, you gotta get in there. You ever get that detailed when you're reading to try to figure out how a vampire might feed and then it matters? Mm. Right? So you ever, every now and again you get a flaw or a certain type. I've always been fascinated when you watch that horror film or read that book when it's like, well, is this the type of vampire that bites and then sucks the two print? Put it to you in terms we understand. Who knows what a Slurpee is here? Mm. Yes. Right? Mm. Or you ever have an Icy and it's filled to the top but it's too cold? Right? This to me is a vampire going to feed in a person every time. Right now, you got to make a hole opening to make it work. Your hope is is that there's just enough warm sluice on the inside that when you puncture the hole with that straw, that you can get enough suction in, right? But what if it's not there? You do what anybody does. Don't you chew it a little bit, right? right. Maybe pop the lid a little bit. It's like smash it around, chew a little more. Now I begin understanding feeding and going. It's probably closer to that. Not everybody fangs, despite, is going to be able to get in and get that clean bite and that suckling action to take effect. But we all think of the romanticized, take my hand. Thank you, Swan Song. I couldn't stop thinking <laughs> of it. The glorious, my hand is yours. <laughs> then you grab it, you're, um, right? I never, I always thought of myself being more, if you're a vampire, what fit vampire is that you were more of a person who didn't care what bit of flesh came to you, right? In starving that mm -hmm. bad, I never looked at a chicken nugget and went, I'm more of a southern portion biter. 
and just you know it was like I'm hungry I, I, I get at it you know what I mean I gotta eat and uh, that's what they sound like someone who doesn't care doesn't have that decor and there's a style to it and I enjoy that but above that Emily Washington being just uh, it sounds like she's just a propped up character to represent and highlight a clan do you feel that's it? I do and don't um, I do because that's how it's presented, but I don't because that's what she's acting as. She knows that she's using this as a ploy to further herself because everyone's buying into it and there's no reason right now not to. You know, one of the characters... I, I, I do like this book for the fact that it just doesn't give you the 2D print of a template. It tells you what the motivation is behind it. So she doesn't want to be under Uncle Herbert forever. And on top of that, she's already embraced, but she kind of just let it go because she knows that if anyone finds out she embraced, she'd be destroyed as well. Mm. Right? Did she care about her embrace? Nope. She's off somewhere. And in reality, we also know their bloodline really doesn't give a shit. Or at least she doesn't. <laughs> um, so she's just biding herself time where she could actually be like, I'm out. Deuces. So I got an idea for, or a question for you both. I was just thinking about it. Um, when it comes to Unholy or Emily Washington, what's your modern take on it? It's 2022. We keep reviewing these older books, but it's not like we can't use them again, mm -hmm. but you got to update the material. So instead of waiting for Dawkins to get another pitch book idea to do another big old book, uh, how about we run that down right here and uh, tell it? I say it because we know he does good work, mm -hmm. but that's the vein, right? I'm trying to think of you mm -hmm. back in Shahar Diary, how they do that. Um, what do you think on it? What do you think The Unholy would be in 2022? I think The Unholy, like the... the um the the slot that feels the story that tells that's pretty much almost almost like a timeless one right you could have you could run a chronicle in 1980 1700s and you would only have to change the unholy up just a little bit so from when this was published to updating to now i think largely it's going to be fine emily washington though uh and i'm going to steal this a bit from you dj well, don't, but don't, Ooh, because I'm okay. not done with you. You said it sticks and unholy. I disagree. Oh, okay. And here's what I'm going to throw at you. You gave her a pattern of her going in, raising hell, and leaving, but technology is different now from when this book was reading. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more she could be tracked with. COVID changes the living habits of everybody mm -hmm. and how we recognize things to be. She's not as stealthy going where she wants now because there's things picking up camera everywhere. We can now tell what birds do. There's a there's a cute story online you can find about how how ravens are, murder of crows acts around a little girl who threw out popcorn one day and just kept dropping food she couldn't help but keep it but these this murder of crows keep coming around and leaving her trinkets for the food she leaves and her and her mom haven't stopped it forever put out a bird feeder take care of the crows and even a cruel event allegedly but lost her phone left it at the park forgot about it this bird brought it back it's a rather sizable crow made it back made it back to the fountain was dunked in water <laughs> but they found it in the same spot they found everything else because apparently crows like to clean the trinkets they keep <laughs> and that's what it was, because it treated them as part of their own thing. Now, why do I say that? This is captured on her home camera that she had of this, how this behavior of the birds were. That's one person. That's like a soccer mom with a cute, I don't know if she plays soccer. Let me take that back. Cute mom, nice relationship with their child. They're just recording what's on their property. Perfectly awesome. Everybody loves the story. Now, if that's the case, how the hell does Unholy stomp around and nobody sees her? Nobody knows what she's up to, especially when her, her whole read says, I don't give a fuck. How does that work? So accounting for things like, you know, ring cameras, right? The, these, the uptick in just literally cameras anywhere, right? You, you run a red light for like uh, right after it turned red and there's a camera reading your license plate, right? How would you, how would you not? Um, the, uh, the, the Unholy has a, I'll say, novel mode of transportation, literal murder of crows. But uh, like you were saying, um, well, crows can be monitored. I, I feel as though there's something that would be watching large migrations of, of crows. But to, to go down this way, like this affects everything in the, in the game. Um, but for the Unholy... It would, uh, shit, she's a far worse masquerade breach than she ever was before. Her attitude's not going to change, I'll tell you that much right now. But it's going to take something like Task Force Valkyrie coming after her. Or, like, just watching her, like, hmm, maybe. I've noticed after she goes to a city two weeks later, something explodes. And some vampires start acting out of pocket. Maybe we can track her and find some easy pickings. That would be a cool one, I think, that would that would be like a, a, an indirect change from, like, you know, bringing up to the modern. Um, 
I guess as far as the unholy goes, which is what I was thinking, the unholy wouldn't care. The unholy wouldn't be changed, but the the aftermath around it, right? Those those ripples that come out from the unholy going somewhere, that would almost change. I wouldn't say change everything. It piles a lot more on top of it. So this comes to a thing where it talks about that red surrender too. Mm-hmm. The fact that it could be the unholy is in red surrender has been for some time. What if she's not a strict? She's just a gang girl who's given in and is a master of the hunt. That's what mm-hmm. she's focused on. I feel a great story is her coming out of it. Mm-hmm. I feel that's a better story, is that she wakes up, caught on camera once, had to kill a group of hunters. Wait a second, when did the prey begin to hunt me? What's going on? What is a camera? What are you watching me on, little morsel? And starts playing around and figures it out, becomes a much more dangerous element. Does she take a domain? Does she go to Torpor? And now she become more of a viable target now that she's there. I think that story has ground to open up because they wrote her and it says that she should be used as a prime force in Requiem. She's not a, she's not a static force. She's something that causes change. Mm-hmm. That's what she does. Mm-hmm. To cause changes to adapt to the times. And that's why I was interesting there. It's great to hear. It's not to say that you were wrong, though I said I disagree. I think there was a better update than that. And I knew you had one. You started coming out there. I, I didn't throw out Strike Force Valkyrie, but they threw that at Solomon Birch, mm-hmm. saying that'd be a guess. Yeah, so would be hunting down the, the big bad blackbird, right? Uh, too late. So good luck with you, right? See what happens. Especially during the day. Can you imagine it? She wakes up and slaughters five guys, and it's sunlight out. Aren't they supposed to be weaker? Yeah, that's her week, boss. We're just, just leave it alone. We'll see you later. Why these birds are just staring you down? Are you going in next? That's an interesting one. But I want to say, not unholy, same thing with Emily Washington, because I feel that Emily Washington, as it is, has a lot of seeds laid to say that she would do and it would be and there's potential for. What's that look like to you, DJ, down the road? To me, it looks like she breaks away from Uncle Herbert and she moves away from the conventional stand of what is anticipated out of her. Because right now, she was born in a time where there was so much these wasp families, these etiquette balls, uh, everyone just watching for purposes of watching. She already knows that she has people on the hook for it. But you know who also has people on the hook for it? If you've ever seen the TV show Euphoria, kids with fucking drugs. (laughs) Right? When they know that they could pull on other people's feelings and know that this is the type of circles that they could all be around. It, it falls within that same type of uh, that same type of realm and because of it I feel that Emily Washington would eventually break away from what Uncle Herbert had set up for her and just create her own cast domain amongst party goers oh party goers that's right you could always all fawn upon her but what makes her special she's got a lot of things that you can ask her for because just because she doesn't flaunt where her resources are coming from because that's what makes the Yapraxis bloodline really good is they always have a finger to point I think that's what will bring her into the 21st century is the fact that she could literally float amongst a lot of people now who are bohemian lifestyles of sorts. So you feel that basically, if I could sum this up, that her stratagem would be to uh, move forward with her planet being underestimated, kind of work to get out from under his thumb, and then she would take a different subsect to control and dominate and make her own. And that's then that's how right. she's known? Hmm. I think that's what she would do. Now, out of that... I'm trying to say, how did she draw your attention more than anyone else? What's the key element? Because that seems like a... If I told you that that was just an idea of an Invictus character thrown out, I kind of feel that status quo. Because look at it this way. What's what's the idea? There's a mentor, sire, who, who raises you to be proper. You do what they say, and now, okay, there it is, and you're being underestimated. One day you'll come out from under the thumb. But what's the thing that hit a guy like you and said, this is the character I love, this is what's awesome about Emily? What hit me about it was we always talk about expectations versus reality. Uh, The expectations are written there many times in the book. They tell you how a covenant should play itself out. They tell you what a clan should feel like. But when you read it, there's that romanticized version of what happens. And then you have an idea of like how your head's going. And we've all heard it before as storytellers where we're like, oh, this is my character. And my character was chilled to like. Cain, but not really, but like kind of sort, right? And like, we were badasses back in the day. And everyone tells that story up until the moment to play. And then usually we just get involved in the, in the situation. But as I was mentioning with this book, what I thought was really good is it gives you a very practical story of what it's like to be under someone's thumb, how to flex the power that you do or don't have, how to bide your time correctly in a very, very short splat, um, along with the horror of you being stuck in a position not because there's any pleasure in it, but because you were victimized. You were victimized in the beginning. She was victimized in the beginning because she was a doll. She, she, it's not her fault she got born 
you know, as a, as a half-breed, you know, it wasn't her fault she was Japanese-American and just ended up being that's what it was. But she's and a, she couldn't escape it in death. But she's a doll, and I now know why I missed what you liked about her. It sounds right. like you're trying to say the pain and what she went through made her interesting to you as to who she became. Is that right? Right. Okay. Right. What's that pain? Right. What does it mean to be a doll? It's to be uh, hollowed and played with. Right, it's not the decisions that she's making are not her own. She's living up to someone else's expectation. She is a grown-up version of Claudia. It reminds me like a a, a halfway teenage oh. version of Claudia. Claudia was given just maybe a cup five more years, right before embrace. What do you get, Claudia? Now I, I feel it felt like they were almost tapping in on that. And and that's good because uh, using it as an example of Claudia is great. But Claudia was mad because she was so young. Right, she can never age. Right. And it was really two fathers trying to learn how to deal with that emotion. What do you mean you're missing out on being an older woman and we love you? And that was enough over years, right? Take the personality of a woman in her 30s, but make her five forever. And you're going to get Claudia, like, mad and pissed off over what she could have, which is why she was hiding bodies. Mm -hmm. But the Assembly Washington doesn't give that feel of doing that. You're saying, and if I'm understanding the aspect of a doll, is the fact that she did what she was told, she dressed as she was told, and she did whatever she was told to do. She was an item, purely. Correct. In that, I kind of feel this is the female interpretation of how it is to be a vampire in a world of darkness. Right? Period. And I don't care if it's Chronicles, I don't care if it's Old World. Every time you hear of the, mm -hmm. the classic uh, female player taking up a stance to play a vampire, their concepts are way better than what I see them do often. And not every one of them, but I'm saying my experience has always been, I'm going to sit behind this power-playing character, right? I want, I want this guy to be my sire. I'm going to hide behind what he does. I'll do what they say, as they say, because that's what it is. But what I find intriguing is you enjoy that in another character who comes out from under it, right? Sounds right. like she comes it's out. It's always the underdog story. Exactly. And it's <clears throat> the underdog. Right. And I think that's the important thing to point out about Emily is that she's only as good as the progress you give her. Right, it's not interesting that you keep her an old head because it could be anything. I'm not saying all females suck and they hide behind anything. I'm saying that's a comfort zone to let someone else play the sucker and go ahead. That's any strategy. But there right. is a misogynistic interpretation of how they pitch. And it, honestly, I'll tell you where it comes from: Dracula and the brides. Mm. Right, Dracula's amazing, but it's the brides you never hear about. No, no, we're, you can you can watch the movie The Brides of Dracula. You can hear stories of someone saying, "Well, I'm a bride of Dracula." You're one of many. Just calm your tits, okay? Like it's cool. But if you're Dracula. Whole oh, man, Netflix give you a whole <laughs> series, right? It's on, it's on, and it goes. And that's my point. That feel of like it can't be, but I disagree. And I think Emily Washington is a is a quiet yell from the past that says you can be better, and this is what it's for. And I and I agree with that. I agree mm -hmm. with your take. But Brennan, you chose Jack Cade, and I like Jack Cade. I was gonna, but I said, you know what? That means you and me are 100% <laughs> on the two characters we would have picked out of this book to talk about uh -huh. today. But now I'm, I'm lethally serious. I'm like, why Jack Cade for you? I knew why for me, but what's, what's it with you? So Jack Cade is the old soldier. This guy, um, when I, the first time I read this book, like I flipped through them, read The Unholy, like the Budapest Prince, a couple of them, you practice being one. The only one that really stuck with me was the old soldier because he is not, um, he is not Dracula who is like, has a, who is trying to like, um, like move to a new country and find like the, his lost love of his life. He, Jack Cade has a love of his own life and it's the same love he had when he was alive and his love is the old red, white, and blue. He was tech Texas born before Texas joined the Union and when Texas went to war with Mexico for its independence and to join America, he went with them and almost died. However, his story gets a little little more bleak. He doesn't get the, uh, I guess, the death he might have been looking for, that glory. He was taken prisoner, but not by the Mexican army, by an old Spanish venture and used as a part of a herd and a plaything. And when he died... Uh, apparently he was embraced to become another plaything. However, uh, the Mexican War was still going on at the time. Mexican-American War, that is. Uh, and uh, it turns out, when you're an old Spanish venture who set up a hacienda somewhere on the Mexican-Texas border, the Union Army doesn't care uh, that you're a vampire. As during the, the confusion when the army moved through, he, uh, Jack Cade, escaped. Uh, however... 
It's not just he went back home to Texas and started a, a domain. He didn't just do that. It's not like uh, what most of us would think neonates would do. He still loved America and everything <laughs> it stood for. And from the Mexican-American War through every conflict America was in, he was a part of it. Not only that, his holdings expanded to some point where he was almost the prince of most of Texas. Right? That's how wide-ranging this guy was. He didn't stay in one domain. DJ, you and I covered the Nomads book, right? About how dangerous it is right. and how difficult it is to move from city to city uh, in the in mm-hmm. anywhere, right? And it's only gotten easier in modern times, and it's still freaking difficult. Je- unless you're Jack Cade, and you don't care, because you still have a job to do. Uh, and I've been kind of humorous with this um, so far, right? But uh, it, it, the reason why this stuck with me the most is because just like the Strix we talked about, they have a theme, they have a purpose, so too does every vampire. Some goal that they spend their requiems moving towards. And that was Jack Cade. It's a little out of left field. It's not what people would have expected, but it's a perfect example of uh, the motivating force that keeps a vampire from falling into torpor and being active. Uh, on that note, uh, Jack Cade almost fell into torpor once. Uh, that was after <laughs> the the uh, Iraqi war where he realized, <laughs> oh, they just shoot missiles now. Like, soldiers don't even have to... Well, I guess I can't do anything. Uh, until uh, Department of Homeland Security was formed, he's like, ah, this is what I'll do. So what did he do? Bob and DJ, he started to infiltrate the Department of Homeland Security. He had an agent, DHS agent Gould, and he was like, look, you're my partner now. We're going across, and they were <laughs> going around apprehending and killing um, enemy combatants, as he said. Now, some of these were, you know, humans. Uh, others were vampires that he said were, uh, in his eyes, causing problems or being enemies of, uh, you know, America, the old red, white, and blue. Um, and it's just... It, the humor aside from it, he is a uh, he is a war horse, right? He is someone that is tired uh almost beaten down as he keeps as he has lived his life but he just keeps going because like a shark even the book says it's like a shark if he stops swimming he's going to die and he is not something i would ever want to come across in any game uh there are i'm not going to tell you any npc is unbeatable right i don't put god mode on npcs however there are some people where if the coterie steps to him and they step to him in his area of expertise he can take all of them out Jack Cade is that martial like badass. I think out of any outside of the super elders we that are in the back of this book, he could take on any group of people one on one. I gotta tell you that Jack Cade, why I loved him so much, is because I think he would actually vote for Jesus Guns Babies. That's uh, that's what I think he would vote for. Um, there is uh, a lot of a lot of ridiculous campaigning you can see going on. It's actually a campaign slogan: Jesus, guns, babies. That's all they want you to focus on. It's uh, we'll just leave it where it is. It's not to just bring in politics. I feel Jack Cade is politics. Yeah, you can't. Right? He's you can't American. He's American. That from him. I feel yeah. that he would have rushed the White House with a Viking hat on if it was done at night. I feel no, that he would have done this. He, have. he reminds he, me of a Donald Trump supporter if he was made immortal. That's why I like Jack Cade. And let me explain something about that. Not for what you think. Jack Cade would do anything that puts America near and dear and, uh, and up in the limelight in the best possible light. That's fanaticism. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have fanaticism, there's no gray area. He's not taking care of any other country than America. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And when you think that way, this is not a good guy we're talking about. No, he is right. um, he's the the requiem version of uh, what? What is the name of the butcher from Gangs of New York? Is it Billy the Butcher? It's the butcher. Uh, I guess the butcher but, uh, just the works. Butcher. Yeah, <laughs> he he is that level of fanaticism, like that. He evokes that out of it, but, but to a terrifying. Well, I was going to say terrifying degree. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character was already terrifying, so I guess it doesn't really help. It's it's an interesting thing, and we hardly need to discuss about an update. I mean, that goes all the way up to Homeland Security. We're good to go. That's not too far off the mark that it needs much in terms of updating in that regard. Um, but um, a guy like that seems to be um, troublesome. Well, let me just say it. Why would he be? Why why would he be? In the, why is he alive? 
Uh, why like, would, why would anybody be, let that guy be alive? That uh, that that that's a good question. That doesn't really um, once you step through it, it doesn't really address that a lot. Other than he has, he's well regarded within the Lankaya's primary covenant. Jack Cade's actually a member of two: the Lankaya and the Invictus. And in that, he does have some ties. Um, that being said, I think the term misanthrope is applied to people that just hates humanity. Jack Cade doesn't really hate humanity. He hates all vampires. He hates every one of them. Um, but he realizes he can't be a vampire vampire hunter and still have the support he has to do what he does. Uh, so he's kind of like an edgelord. A little bit. A little right? bit. He can't be like everybody else, so he's got to hate them all so he stands out from the crowd. Uh-huh. Though he's just as deplorable as everybody else. <laughs> uh, I he, mean, it's... Th- don't get me wrong. He, he's a pretty horrible person pretty extreme does not care about uh, uh despite his you know uh believing in everything america stands for he does not care about personal rights whenever it's uh in his way uh, and he is he is pretty sadistic um he wouldn't be doing the things he was doing uh you know kidnapping people interrogating people murdering them if he didn't enjoy doing it what do you think makes him that like, how do you make a guy who's so fanatical that it lasts beyond undeath and that becomes their sole focus, you think? I, I think it would have a lot to do, like everything with the, any any character or vampire, it has a lot to do with everything to do with who they were when they were alive, like their upbringing and their culture. And it doesn't fully explain that, but I can fill in some pieces. I think uh, uh, Cade grew up being a very, an, an incredibly patriotic person in a patriotic household. Uh, like we talked about when we first started this, right? He signed up to go in the army, right? And he died in the pursuit of that, in the defense of that. And he was tortured, not just for like days, but for months. He was kept as a plaything of an elder to pray vampire. There has, there was, without a doubt in my mind, a lot of damage that was done in that point. And when he got his freedom, coming out of it in a frenzy, I, I think he clung on to the only thing he knew at that point, right? What he think might have gotten him out of that, which is well, his patriotism. I think his requiem being founded in that. He just clung to it, not just clung to it, but he like took it and like molded it to be the the rock solid support that he's leaned on for what 150 years. So that sounds that sounds like a much more viable reason why to like this guy, other than he's just pro America. Like I think pro America isn't the draw. I think what you just said is is that he became that way because it's all he has left. Mm-hmm. That became his new island. Or his new uh, his new touchstone, if we like to use the term, um, it had to be yeah. something that let him know why he continued existing, and that's there, and that's hardware. It's a good read. I like that. Um, but DJ, there's a name you threw out there, and I, I'll admit to you, I, I, I looked at it, I read it, and I sat there and I said, it's not my choice, but Raphael Pope has got to have some sort of that you have a knack for picking like opposite of me, and I'm wondering why Raphael Pope drew you so much. <laughs> so. Raphael Pope um, is picked because Raphael Pope also happens to be um, the heretic. Who is the heretic? The heretic was that thing that both Birch and the Unholy were talking about at the beginning of the story. When we first meet Raphael uh, during the prologue, he's he's right for the picking. His his body is like all gangly. It's already, his ribcage already open. What's left of his heart is pretty much like a dried grape. Um, I could I keep imagining the unholy just kind of using her claws and she could just kind of squeeze it. That's how like small and desiccated his heart is. But he gets brought back to life. What's important about Raphael Pope though is that Raphael Pope is an anomaly amongst anomalies, um, and he is a firebrand to the core. Why? He starts off um, as a guy who's completely unassuming, or you wouldn't think anything of him, except for the fact that he was a Lakea member. Um, he was a Lakea member who, for whatever reason was brought up to great heights before he started embarrassing himself. And they just kind of like, they're like, all right, you, it's time for you to stop talking and just kind of, you need to to chill out. You know, once the PR goes around, we'll, we'll bring you back. Um, but moving it a little bit forward, you come to find out this isn't a guy who's making blunders, right? This guy who was quote unquote, maybe or may not fall for grace. He recognized very early during his requiem that he wanted to be something. And you should be something because if you're not something, you're nothing at all. And I think this is what also drew me about him is the fact that vampires need to cling on to something. Once you're dead, 
good luck. You know, I think especially when we're looking at the characters in the segment um, where he comes from, which is the outlaws, you cannot be anyone. You have to be someone because being ignored is far worse than having attention brought to you. Even bad publicity is good publicity. And he knew that. He knew that, so he purposely destroyed his reputation so he could start fresh. And what did he do? He started taking on these nouveau ideas of speaking to everyone and bringing them into like <laughs> conference rooms and being like, what do you feel about the situation? Really? Not exactly how I would have gone about it. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Kenneth over there has to say his piece. Let's go ahead and listen to what he has to say. And what they found out was he was a really good facilitator. And even though he recognized that he wasn't climbing anywhere in the ranks of the Linkea or any other covenant, he did this because he felt, if I can't climb the ranks of a covenant, I'll just make my own. And so he started getting all these free thinkers around because he thought he could start stringing them along until he started drinking his own Kool-Aid. And now he started believing that he could actually start moving people in that direction. Um, but why is he the heretic? Because my dude had access as well to many people. It wasn't just like, the Invictus were like, all right, we'll, we'll keep it there. He got a lot of fringe societies together and he was able to pull in the crone. He learned a lot of the crone and at one point he even got in trouble because he was just trading secrets nilly-dilly. He's like, you need a little bit of Theban sorcery? Bow, you got it. What about that crew act? Bow, you got it too. Um, which caused a lot of heat to come on his way. And because of the way that he was thinking, why I found it fascinating for what we play vampire, whenever we play vampire, we understand the following. Whether it's camera that we're taking a look at Requiem, it's the older ones on top are the ones that set policy and you live within the rules of the game or you don't live at all. And a lot of the stuff that we do outside of the game, and especially in the Western world, at East in America, is we're free thinkers, we're independent. Let's go ahead and try out all these progressive ideas. And you get to see why his progressive ideas don't work yeah. in a vampire society and why he's going to get shut down every single time. So it was a nice way to mix in, you know, how to separate game from reality. What happens when you try to involve... Don't you think a vampire at one point would have tried what we think, right? <laughs> let's, bring, let's bring politics into the game, right? Let's go ahead and... Why can't we all be progressives? Even the Carthians can't pull it off because Raphael Pope is a very good example of what happens when you two-time, you don't respect the laws of the game, and you get shut down along the way. I think the Pope represents someone that is a... that honestly feels like the vampire Lestat if he failed. Uh. Right? Right. Okay, I can see right. that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Everybody loved him. He's up there, and they're like, you need to chill it. Like, cool it out, Lestat. We're done. No limelight. The elders have noticed. They know you back up. He's like, I can't leave my public behind. You can, and we're going to make you. Like, just think, you're going to make me, are you? Well, if I can't have you love me, then you will hate me universally, right? And he goes about his work, but then you hear about what happens to him, which is why the unholy is trying to snack attack him, and Birch is trying to stop it. It's an interesting... It's an interesting character for that reason alone, that they showed you, across three characters they made, how to enthrall them together to network them in an interesting story. However, where do the players fit in in all this? That's what I want to say. All the characters we love in this book, do you see your players able to fit and dance in stories around these dynamic, amazing characters? I would say, for the first first two-thirds of the book, yes. Because at this point, we haven't reached... I mean, we, we could definitely write them in to deal with the monsters, but I, I like the fact that so far from the characters that I've chosen, there's always a hook as to why. Pope, even though he has these progressive ideas, does have power, right? What makes him powerful is the fact that he will listen to the disenfranchised. And most coteries, as they start off, are exactly that. You're working from the outskirts in. Or when you're taking a look at Emily, Emily has connections, and she's relatively new. And yes, does everyone fawn over her? Who doesn't want to be a neonate? Wait a second, were neonate characters working with other neonate characters? For the hooks that were written for the characters that I chose, I think there definitely was an entryway um, to bringing you in to, to interact with them. There are reasons to interact with them. What about you, Brennan? Yeah, uh, I, I do uh, completely agree. I mean, half of uh, the Unholy's entire uh, like plot arc is uh, that they go around, they interact with people, they go to new places, like they do meet people, right? Uh, interacting in the all-night society is, is a core to the Unholy's uh, cycle that she goes through. Uh, Jack Cade, Jack Cade's a little bit different. Um, not that he can't, but that it's a little bit more like narrow interactions because he's so focused on one thing, right? Um, 
most of the arcs or hooks that would involve Jack Cade are not going to be where he's going to be friendly. Um, it's probably if you're seeing Jack Cade, it's probably because you did something or you know someone that did something, and he's got some questions. And if you're very lucky, it's going to take place at the horse track while you guys are betting and having a friendly conversation because the friendly conversation is only going to be offered once and the follow-up's not going to be happy. Uh, Regardless, even if that is the first interaction you have, he's going to show up again. He is not someone that leaves loose ends. And that kind of mindset is... uh, It's like walking around a landmine, right? Uh, So that's the kind of interactions, the hooks... I can see form and plots. Well, in terms of hooks and plots, I do give that. What I was looking at is that this book as a whole, mm-hmm. it's designed to get people to see examples of vampires in Requiem from different stages. Um, but I think it's really hard for your players to interact with these characters and not sit back and watch a show. Yes. Much like listen to this. If you encounter the unholy, who's doing shit to the unholy? Mm-hmm. Who's trying to talk to the unholy? This becomes a harder thing to do. Not indifferent than Children of the Night or what have you, but the one thing they used to do that has done well, when you have a conglomerate, global vampire society, what happens is it becomes more viable that you will bump into a luminary mm-hmm. now and again, and that there is a station yeah. they would have in a way to approach it. It makes it possible. Here in Requiem, not so much. With everything being more personalized and domains matter, you know, you got different covens rule in the show, everything's different where you go, it makes it to where my brain goes, huh? It's almost as if they're saying, to get inspired to have a story, build it around one of these characters, which is definitely a method you could do here. What if we're the chilled of one of these things? What if a whole plot is the discovery of one of these things? These are the things I would want people to take away, is how to use these characters to affect. Mm-hmm. And of course they got plot hooks, how to put them in your chronicle, but I strongly suggest you just seriously think about it. Like, Jack Cade in a chronicle, I wouldn't want Brentron to pitch Jack Cade as a storyteller to me the way he's doing now. The head nods of pride, Fuck yeah, Texas, <laughs> USA, right? I hate the guy off the bat, not because anybody's a fanatic of USA, not because they're a fan of Texas, none of that, because I'm a fan of Texas, I'm a fan of the USA. My problem is, the more, you, I mean, I'm, I'm literally somebody's anti-authoritarian. The more you tell me something's good or someone's awesome at it, I will find the flaw in that piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I think that every time, and Jack Cade is definitely a person who's not gone to it. Now, to a limit, little, little hyperbole I'm using there about how bad I am anti that, but uh, it's a simple fact of this. I want my players, I feel players are owed to discover why they are the way they are, naturally. So I hope their mm-hmm. story is told and the players investigate that. Like, like to me, it'd be great if the Unholy was someone you found out back, right? She's just feeding. Mm. And somebody bumps into her like, oh, sorry, this is your turf, my bad. And she just looks up a second. But you walked off and played your cards, right? So the Unholy's like, before you're qu- quite out of reach, she's like, you hungry? I'm about done. <laughs> yeah, if you wouldn't mind, I'm having a rough go of it. You look like it, kid. Why don't you get over here? Yeah, go ahead and eat. No one's going to mind him missing. Do I know this guy? And then she just stares at you with those baleful bird-like hunting mm-hmm. eyes, right? And you're like, well, all, all right. right. Well, doesn't matter to me if it doesn't matter to you. And you feed for him. And she's like, where are you from, kid? And you start talking to her. And to me, the unholy sounds like the old woman from Pumpkinhead, the witch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Harley, right? Pumpkinhead? That's how I hear the unholy in my mind, where she's trying to swallow this instinct. But for a brief moment, she's there with that player. Now, why I like that approach is because that player gets to go, you all right? You need anything? Like, no offense. It's got to be hard. I mean, I didn't see you with the car. Let me give you a ride back to your place. You fed me. I'll go bury the body. I'll be, you don't need to bury the body none. Birds take care of that. Why? Birds are interesting around here. Don't you worry about that sweet thing. But you got a ride? Yeah, right over here. What you come with? And Unholy gets in the car. And now you're driving around with Unholy and don't know what's going on. But the people who are fans of Requiem in your group are like, You're what the fucking Unholy! It's the Unholy! You don't get it's the Unholy! And they're like, what's the Unholy? Like, it's just some lady. It's a gang girl. She's an elder. She's pretty cool. Hopefully she could teach me how to do that bird thing. You know, but they're too cool. You know what I mean? It's like this mentorship develops raw. And I could see that. And to me, that's cool if that player doesn't know who the unholy is because she didn't call her the unholy. Mm-hmm. Right? She said, what's your name? Rebecca. Even though that Rebecca is the name tattooed on, like, you know, printed on the, the shop worker's shirt that the person she just fed from, and you just you just go with it. Right. It's all in the presentation <laughs> of these NPCs that make them workable, believable, mm-hmm. enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But if you just run up and Agreed. it's like, what's your name? Jack Cade, and you fucked up. This is America. It's like, okay, 
Arnie Brentron to try this again, right? No offense, <laughs> I'm teasing. But that's how well, you wouldn't do that. But that's uh, right. Because I see, to me, Jack Cade is the combination of Josh Berlin and Benicio del Toro and Sicario. It's like, come on, son, get in this car. We got shit to do right now. What are you talking about? We got to hit up these Mexicans, this, uh, the Sinaloa. We got to do this. Why? And you look at them. So I give you options right now. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and burn down your entire haven, everything you do or don't love about, because right now we got one job to do. You win or you out. And as the guns are cocking and everything's happening, well, via con Dios, I'll see you on the other side. Come back successful. And that's how I would probably start off with Jack. Which is a good point. But part two of this is how do we make characters like this in the book? Well, I'm going to help you cheat. And it's the easiest way. For those of you who've ever read Children of the Night or any of these other books, you'd be like, oh man, amazing characters. Mm-hmm. I one day hope. I hope my NPCs are as interesting. You get it? I'm going to tell you their metric and their formula is stupid easy. I'm going to give it away to you. This is how they do it in this Rockman book. It's real easy. Have a background. But your background is succinct. Mm. Nobody has a 10,000 word background that is worth a damn. I will warn you now, if your background is more than two pages, and you better be an elder at that two page mark, might as well throw it away and try again what i mean by throw it away whatever idea you had pump the brakes go back can you retell it to make it shorter imagine you're trying to pitch this idea to someone and you want them to make a movie about your character you don't want to talk beyond the two-page mark right the first page should give like you know typical background of what you did and how it was and where it came from that's all in the starting guide books that they give you but the background you need, because it helps us understand. Just like I asked Brentron and DJ about their character more. I'm not going to settle for your, ah, the book says high overview, they're awesome. That's high overview, but why are they that way? Mm-hmm. And then they had to answer to it. Your background is the why, right? Part two. Basically, how do you insert your character in the world of darkness? Make that its own section. They do here for mm-hmm. these characters. Literally says the unholy in the world of darkness and what she means to the world of darkness. Once you give your background and your embrace and all that jazz and you're created, put how you see your character in the world of darkness. What do you serve? What's your point in the chronicle you feel? Your co-storytelling when you're a player. The ST told you the setting, told you the city, told you what it's about. But this is your chance to crow. My character's freaking important. This is why my character's important. Little do you know... There are serial killers in the world, and they think they're the worst. I'm actually the prime evil. And I serve a force, a reminding force, of what they fear in the dark, so I'm making said character blah, blah, blah. Throwing out an example. But any storyteller could take that and get the feel and the understanding of what that character is looking to experience in the world of darkness for them. And also, how might others take that? You're agreeing to be that, but now I know how my city would respond to the... Because not a lot of people know how to give mannerisms to anything that dark. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. And if they don't have any idea, you, the ST, are supposed to help them feel that character. This is a big connect that helps the player tell you what they're trying to do, and you to narrate and describe how they feel when they do it. And eventually, they'll do it on their own in their acting and portrayal of the character. Third thing is Personality. Yes, you're going to have to describe how you see the personality of the character separate than yourself. It's a technique all this time. I'm going to give you that tip. Look up personality. Know to make it before because I know we're at the end. I'm giving you these quick tips. Um, second thing, or another thing is secrets. Every character has them. Mm-hmm. We talk a world about touchstones, but what are the secrets you keep? Mm-hmm. Did you kill your father? You don't talk about it? Are you someone who's on the run from the law and you got embraced and you just don't, don't speak a word of it? And what did you do to be on a run from the law? Um, are you someone who violated, completely violated, um, the aspects of embracing somebody else? And this is your fifth city you've ran to, but they're wanting your blood from three others. Is that notable? You don't have to take a flaw for these quirks, folks. These secrets should be good. Maybe you know, really, where the prince buries the bodies. And you're on the run. You talked to SD, said, yeah, that's great. Being a keeper of secrets is great. It's another good way and good hook to feel involved. But the rumors are great, too. Now, the rumors are something you yourself can make up or tell the ST. I'm curious what people know about me, or the ST tells you you're just starting out. No rumor that I know of, but you might put down as a starting rumor, my guy's not good at feeding. He's still getting used to it. Therefore, he leaves a body here and there. Doesn't know what else to do. Hasn't got down a... Basically, I'm the type of person... Someone, some ghost, is mauling people in alleyways that leave no marks and there's no blood in them. And 911 gets a mysterious call, and they know they have five minutes to get there before the person completely dies. That can become an urban legend. 
And it's a great rumor, when in reality, it's a vampire who's trying to learn their shtick. And finally, story hooks. This is all ST. But if you have a player who approached you with a background that's solid, story hooks are on you. This is where you sit back and look at this book for an example to figure out what are the story hooks that would be interesting for people to get involved in. What are some of the things that made it to a book that cost hard-earned money for people to get to read to understand? And if you do these story hooks, you're able to see I'm not making it to where they're pigeonholing anything. I'm making story hooks to see what clicks right now that works for the story I'm telling. That's why I say make, a mo make only three. One of those three should be able to stick for the story you have. And if they don't, Get rid of them and make a couple more based on where you see your Chronicle going. In this, it's easy money upkeep for a Chronicle for an ST and for players playing a character. I promise you, you'll have the easiest time getting through a game, sitting down, literally playing game the way you want it. You want to sit down and just play game and enjoy it before the two weeks or month go by before you can play again. This is how you do it. Because all the hard work's done. Now you just got to play the character and enjoy the fun. And uh, if that's it, that's all. Well, that's it for the book. Mm. Gentlemen, do you have any parting words before we head out? I do not. All right. There. I, uh, I, I do. I mean, the last thing, though, is definitely it is, uh, you know, many people have a, a stigma about, once again, what Bob was mentioning earlier, whether or not something oh. is canon. This book is good because of the way that it does present the information to you. And I think it would behoove you to at least pick one good character out of it that you like outside of the ones that we chose because it'll, it'll definitely help ground where you want to bring your game. Absolutely. And with that, brings us to a close here. Um, if this survives and it's on YouTube, welcome, folks. Appreciate it. Um, otherwise, uh, enjoy listening to it nonetheless. And we are working on what we said we do, and it's coming, folks. Sooner or later, you'll be able to see all the stumble, mumble, and everything else live and for your enjoyment. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, DJ. And tune in next time, folks. For sure. See you. Got it. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.